This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Welcome to Coffee House Shops for Spectators, Dean's podcast coming to you live from the Emmanuel Centre. to have 200 listeners with us in the room this evening, and we're going to be discussing the political scene in the days after the coronation. I'm Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined by Katie Bowles, our political editor, Camilla Tomini, Telegraph's um, extra, um, correspondent extraordinaire, and Matt Goodwin, the single best political academic in this country. Welcome all. Um, so, I am going to start with... Um, Earlier on, I did a straw poll of who listens to the podcast. Broadly speaking, I'd say there are 15 people yet to be converted. Most of the rest of you do. Um, I won't do a show of hands asking who watched the coronation. I'm imagining every single person did. Um, It was... um, How many people would say it lived up to expectations? How many disappointed? Okay, that's not bad... What would you say, Camilla? That's probably about like three percent. Yeah, I think so, I'd be happy with those. And what do you think? The, what do you think the royal family will be thinking? They would have known that this was a spectacle, of course, as a national unity point. Would they be happy? Do you think? With I think words? so. I mean, actually, I reflected on it and thought it was rather undercooked mm-hmm. in the lead-up. You know, I don't know why everyone was so apologetic about it. Oh, we're having a coronation. Do take part if you'd like, but you know, you don't have to. Hang on a minute. Coronations don't come round every five minutes quite understandably, and I, they always say this before royal events, oh, nobody's going to turn out, they're going to have to bring in a renter crowd. It's like every royal event I've covered, people come out in their hundreds, thousands, and millions. So um, I actually thought that the ceremony was quite emotional. Um, I thought it was an extraordinary spectacle, as we've come to expect with the pomp and pageantry on display in the capital. I love the fact that, once again, London seemed to be the centre of the universe as far as the global audience is concerned. And as is ever the case with the monarchy, you know, it didn't just tell the story of an institution, but the story, a very human story, of a man who has waited his entire life to fulfil his destiny and some of the family dynamics that have come with that in recent years, I'd say. Okay, one of the things, that, and also, I don't know, call me shallow, right, but I did personally... Uh, walk away. My takeaways were all the costumes, right? Now, I, I would say that pe- my, my personal view, um, everybody's got a hierarchy of this, don't pretend you don't. I say and that. Fraser, at this point, should you tell everyone you did used to work in retail journalism? Yes, I did. I used to be r- writing about clothes before I wrote about politics, so I've got a very keen interest in this. Um, now, of course, Penny was a triumph, but she had hot competition. I would say that. Um, oops. Prince, where's where she gone? Oh, you've taken her off the screen. But, you know, the, um, we had the, the, the Princess Royal, who looked magnificent in that hat. Now, if that doesn't look like a queen of a faraway galaxy, I don't know <laughs> what does. I mean, look at that star. Magnificent. And the Princess Royal looked magnificent as well. But my purse, look at that. Again, that hat, right? She really pulls it off. The, the interesting thing, by the way, Fraser, about Will and Kate is over the last six months, their approval ratings have soared. And if you compare them to mm. Harry and Meghan, Harry and Meghan are now basically in what I call Prince Andrew territory. <laughs> so, so they are like minus 50 
like they're the most unpopular people in the royal family, but Kate and Will have soared. Conquering queen. Um, my, anyway, my, my, my personal sartorial winner, though, I have to say, was um, Princess Charlotte. With that kind of papal robe, complete stroke of genius. I'm not quite sure. I would say they, they give put a brother in a kind of like Darth Vader black, you know? <laughs> anyway, now, now, the thing is, do they actually know before they go off to these things, the world is going to be looking at our costumes? Yes. So what's interesting is when they were going to Platinum Jubilee events, we were told at the very last minute about their appearance because right. as parents, we all know what children of that age are like. And if they don't want to be there, they can't put them on display because it would just be so awkward and terrible. So they've got this really careful balancing act between recognising their public role, even at this young age, bearing in mind that they're nine, eight and five respectively, and also ensuring that they are happy children who are happy to do it. And actually, their characters have come out quite a lot. I think for George, that's a bit of a coming of age from him, from a royal perspective, to be the page of honour, which is a lot of responsibility. The other boys that did that for Charles were 13 and 14, and he's nine. Princess Charlotte kind of is already striking me slightly as a Princess Anne figure in being the power behind her brother's future throne. <laughs> And then you've got Louis, who, let's be perfectly honest, seems to really enjoy the crowds and get stuck in. So all credit, I think you've pinpointed there, the Princess of Wales very much looking like a queen in waiting. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that's making the family more relatable, particularly from my perspective as a working mother, because her ability to balance a bit of maternalism with this idea that she hasn't really put a foot wrong when she goes about her duty is, I think, something that could perhaps attract the Gen Zs. You know, by the time the Gen Zs have their own kids, if they're anything like the mums at the school gates that I know, they're sort of obsessed by Kate. How does she do it? You know, So at these children, I don't think they should over-egg it because they're kids. But I think it's great that they are letting the public sort of watch them as they grow up. And it's very much, by the way, just briefly, the Princess of Wales has been bossing this personally. She decided when they were born, she loves photography, she wanted to release imagery under her own name, control the royal family album, and it's been a masterstroke because, of course, it's killed the market for paparazzi shots stone dead. Really? Why? Because nobody wants paparazzi shots taken of Prince George in a playground on a long lens when you've got him frolicking in the gardens of Kensington Palace with his dad. So it's the cleverest thing ever, and it's interesting particularly today with, again, another court case. Harry's currently suing five different newspapers for five different things. You know, he should appreciate that if it wasn't for her sister-in-law, mm. we're at a point where royal privacy has never been more respected mm. and that these children are being allowed to grow up without being chased by the paps, and quite rightly. Well, if uh, the Princess of Wales were played a blinder, um, I'm not quite sure if the same could be said for Richie Sunak a few days earlier, Katie. So tell it, let's talk a bit about the local elections that everybody um, wasn't talking about as soon as the festivities set up. But the, the Conservatives were always expecting a bit of a kicking. Um, I guess the question is whether they were expecting one in this, in this league. But I mean, Greg Hans, sorry, Guy Hans was, was talking about, um, about you know, he, this was worse than his prediction. So what was this at the worst end of expectations? Yes. <laughs> anyway. Right. I can say more though. Yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I think when the number you hear uh, members of the cabinet trotting out on the media as a means of 
exploitation management so they can go a bit better and be like, look, we defied the figure everyone said. When that number is lower than the number of Tory councillors seats you actually lose, you know something's gone quite wrong. <laughs> and that's what happened because you had Greg Hand saying, we can lose as much as a thousand seats. Everyone was saying, there's no way they're going to do that. And they lost over a thousand. So I think it's hard to make a case that this was um, an okay night for the Conservatives. Um, it clearly was a very bad night for the Conservatives. I think the question is, how good a night was it for Labour? That's a bit more debatable. But I think what went wrong for the Tories is not only did Keir Starmer at least have a decent night when it comes to taking back control of some councils in parts of the Red Wall. I think that's a pretty encouraging sign. Also, some of those swing seats, if a party is on the path back to power, those were areas where Labour did quite well. Um, but what really, I think, tipped the Tories over, so it was over a 1,000 council seats, was how the Liberal Democrats were a surprise hit. Um, did much better than I think lots of the pollsters predicted. I remember uh, writing a piece because uh, Lib Dem said to me, we're going to take Eton. They're very happy, excited about the prospect of taking Eton. Um, obviously, Rishi Sunak has asked all old Etonians from his cabinet, so he's also been uh, taking on Eton in his own way. <laughs> but uh, I remember pollsters saying, there's no way the Liberal Democrats are going to do that well in Windsor and Maidenhead. Um, and they took control of the council and they took that ward. Um, so, so I think that, and then I think what's probably unnerving the Tories the most is if you look, it was uh, not just the Liberal Democrats, the Greens also did pretty well, um, taking control of some councils, and you also had independents doing well. And there's two ways of looking at it. If you want to be a Tory MP trying to keep a smile on your face, um, you will look at those results and you will say, the fact that Labour did not do, you know, the fact that the general swing suggests Labour would not get a majority repeated in a general election just shows a lack of enthusiasm for Keir Starmer and parties going, you know, and voters going to other parties because of that. Um, you know, you can look, for example, 1989 European elections where Labour got the largest vote share, Greens did pretty well, 1992 the Tories win. It was a sign they would argue that Kinnock wasn't so popular. Or, and I think this is the one that's probably worrying Tory MPs, because I think some think this might be more likely, um, it shows that there is some serious tactical voting going on. Um, there's a massive anti-Tory vote, and people being quite smart about it. And if that is repeated in a general election, and of course it's always a bit trickier in a general election, you know if a, you know, you know if the party isn't campaigning with a, you know, a candidate in a much clearer way, I think, um, that could really spell a lot of trouble for Rishi Sunak and his party, because they'll be squeezed, you know, uh, losing seats in the south, uh, seats they thought were very safe, and also losing seats in the north. And I think I think that's the probably the newer concern from those local election results. Matt, there's so much, um, so many uh, runes to read in the local election results. But what did you see any trends in there? I mean, for example, a, a Lib Dem recovery, a Labour doing better or worse. I mean, one always talks about how Labour are 15 points ahead of the national poll, but only about eight or nine points in the locals. Um, what, if anything, does this tell us about the political trends underway right now? Everybody's disillusioned. Everybody's fed up. Um, Labour underperformed the national polls. Conservatives are getting squeezed on two flanks. They're losing the South to Labour and the Lib Dems, and they're losing large chunks of the Red Wall, uh, not just to Labour, but to apathy. 
people are not turning out. Um, why is that? I think basically what happened is the Conservative Party no longer really knows what it is or what it believes. And I think if you go back to 2016, the Conservatives had a unique opportunity to reshape their electorate and to reshape the country's political geography. Uh, as I said to some former prime ministers at the time, there is absolutely no way that London, the university towns, the middle-class professionals, the millennials and the Zoomers are going to vote conservative at the next general election in 23 or 24. It just ain't going to happen. Brexit, Boris, Partygate, Trussonomics, you just lost those voters, right? You can win them back long-term, but not, not at the next election. Your only option as a political party is to lean in to the people who lent you their vote in 2017 and 2019. And what did those people want? They wanted a completely different consensus, economically, politically, culturally. And what did they get? Mass immigration, probably at the end of this month, 700,000. Watch the figures on the 26th. They got nearly 5 million people on welfare, out-of-work benefits, as Fraser's excellent columns in the Telegraph have, have detailed. We've still got a London-centric economy. We're still dependent on financial services. There's no pushback on hyper-globalization. There's no pushback on radical, woke progressivism. The conservatives basically have tried to please everybody and have pleased nobody. And this is a party that currently in my view, deserves to lose the next general election until it can finally decide what it wants to be. You know, until it can finally decide what it wants to stand for. You cannot seriously have a post-Brexit conservative party that on the one hand says it's going to prioritize national, in national interest and the national community and the national economy, and on the other hand, remove the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs in Britain first. It's just completely contradictory, inconsistent. So I think what we saw in the local elections, and Katie's absolutely right, always take them with a pinch of salt. But what you saw, I think, was widespread disillusionment, a sense actually on both the left and the right that nobody has the answers. Nobody's thinking long term. Nobody's seriously coming up with the interesting answers to the questions that this country faces. And until we get those people, I think we're going to just get apathy. And if you said to me, who's going to win the next election? That's the answer. Apathy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people sitting at home saying, actually, nobody here has got the answers. Camilla, what about you? Did you see any trends in last week's results? Well, I mean, there's all of this talk about shy conservatives in the country, but unfortunately, they're in the cabinet. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, what, what is there, what is there to... What motivation would people possibly have right now to vote Conservative? If they're homeowners, if they're business owners, if they're young, if they're old, uh, if they're Brexiteers. I mean, what, somebody tell me something that you would want to vote for. And unfortunately, the Conservatives have lost their balls. I mean, Boris, we can go around and around in circles blaming everybody else for Boris's downfall. Dominic Cummings, Carrie, Rishi Sunak. When do we start blaming Boris? 
bless him, and I'm very fond of him, for squandering an extraordinary opportunity in 2019. Now, you can say he was handed, pardon the pun, the hospital pass that was COVID, but we know from the Telegraph's lockdown files how shambolic his government became, a government by WhatsApp, a government of ego rather than scientific fact, and again, a government that lacks courage. I mean, it's, it's not difficult to define what conservatism is. I think every person in this room could do it really easily. But unfortunately, the government doesn't seem to know what it is. And that's why they're hemorrhaging support. And the other problem with it is, if you don't have a positive vision that you can champion, because you have to be for something, Boris won because he was for Brexit. Yes, there was the, oh my God, anyone but Corbyn factor. But it was for something. If you don't know what you're for, it's then also quite difficult to attack the opposition. Because what can Jeremy Hunt say? Can he get up and give a kind of John Howard-esque speech about if you vote for Labour, you're going to be taxed more? Oh, no. If you vote for Labour, you know, your business is going to suffer. Oh, crumbs. He might be able to say if you vote for Labour, you may be more likely to lose your job but you can't even make the argument on benefits as you've covered comprehensively in The Spectator. Okay, this is a matter of interest. Can anybody in this room complete the sentence, I really want the Conservatives to win the ne ele next election because dot, dot, dot. A genuine question, I'm not being facetious. Yes, so can we get, can we get, can we get a microphone? Okay, by the way, that... Because Labour will be even worse. I, I get that. If one were one to for come, their campaign leaflets. If anybody were to come up with a positive re reason that they positively want the Conservatives, let's set aside the alternatives being worse. Is there a reason why anybody would look forward to another term of Conservative government? Sir, in the front. We've got one hand. Because they deserve to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... Any, any, anybody else? Yeah, we've got another, an, another positive reason to vote Conservatives. Man in the white shirts. Is it? Oh, it's not James, it's not James Forsyth, is it? No. <laughs> we win there, then. Because many people in the country still hold Conservative values, yes. even if the party doesn't necessarily represent them at the time. Yeah. So you'll be travelling, hopefully, um, which is fine. Any other thoughts? Yes, sir, in the red. Um, because I think absent the looming general, general election, I think Rishi Sunak could actually have a, do a pretty good stab at, at running this country if he could have a crack at it without having to think, think about the election coming his way. Right, because right, right now, sir, you say he's constrained because he's got a general election. Exactly. He's, he's, he's sort of, his decision-making is going to be coloured by what he can see coming down the track. Um, but if he was given you know, sort of clear four or five years to, to actually make some material change to the way both the Conservative parties run and the country is organised. I think he's, you know, I think he's a clearly competent character and he just needs to be given the chance to do it, you know. And what, what sort of change, in this scenario, what sort of changes do you think that a liberated Sunak with a five-year mandate is likely to do? Um, I don't think I... <laughs> I can't think of one right now. You put me on the spot. Yep, sorry, we've got somebody, somebody at the front here. Sorry, do you want, do you want to take Katie's mic? Let's get going. He's going to make sure everybody can do maths A-level. Okay. How many people have got maths A-level in this room? Rishi Sunak would be so impressed. 
Great. No journalists put up their hand there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. So, I mean, um, so, Matt, I guess that our, our little focus group here, we are struggling a bit to find positive reasons for Conservatives to go to the ballot. Now, the first answer here, because Labour would be worse. That tends to be, I don't know, I'm, I'm no pollster, but I imagine that's probably the number one reason for voting Conservative over the years, for, for fear of something worse. Um, but is there a fear of something worse if it's Keir Starmer? Because he's no Jeremy Corbyn. I think that's true. I was, I was struck by the, the audience's reaction. It, two weeks ago, I was running a focus group in Stoke-on-Trent, and it was exactly the same. And we talk about geographical divides, but they're so fed up, as you are. I mean, it's palpable. I can feel it. Everybody in this room is just crying out for something that is completely different to what we've got. And we can all sense it. You know, they've been given this unique opportunity with this enormous majority. They've done nothing with it. Nothing. And I think one of the interesting things about the Conservatives, to go back to the gentleman's point at the front, is actually I think the, the good thing that can come out of this is actually a debate the party needs to have, which is what is conservatism? What is it today? Because what I can see is just a, a long line of politicians selling us out constantly to the needs of globalization, big business, doing everything that they, they can to basically deflect from delivering on conservative values and conservative principles. Keir Starmer, I think, has got it easy as a result of that. He's underperforming. Labour underperformed the national polls at the local elections. Keir Starmer's approval ratings are about plus five, so they are around 15 points lower than Blair's were at this point in the uh, pre-97 era. But Sunak's um, about minus 15, minus 20. Well, Sunak's approval ratings have been improving, and the, and the problem for the Conservatives is Sunak is more popular than the party. So I'm sort of sympathetic on one level to Rishi Sunak in that you know, he's carrying around this kind of dead weight, right? He's carrying around all of the problems and the mistakes and the errors of the post-Brexit era, and he's trying to turn something, you know, use that and turn it into something that's, that's positive. It's very, very difficult. Um, Labour basically need to just ensure that the old saying is true, that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And as long as he's projecting competency and credibility, he'll be fine. On every major issue in British politics right now, Labour is ahead. Cost of living, economy, NHS, uh, poverty, inequality, immigration and Brexit, for God's sake. How on earth did the Conservative Party get into a position where Labour is ahead on immigration and Brexit? Seriously. That in itself speaks volumes, Right. So if you looked at me as a, and you said, you know, as a political scientist, there are a couple of things that always predict election outcomes. One is leadership ratings, Starmer's ahead of Sunak. The other, issue ownership. Who owns the most important issues that voters really prioritize? Labor, all of them. And on the NHS, it's 30 points, not even close. So on all of those metrics, we're heading into a Labor government. I just hope that that gets the Conservative Party into the place where they really need to be, which is to decide what they are, what they are for, and what they are against, and to come up with somebody that is consistent in delivering on those principles. Okay, well, let's open it up to questions. We've heard some from you, but we've got... Okay, um, 
gentleman in a rather splendid orange jacket there. Yeah, you? There's only one. It's more of an observation than a question. I was thinking about the comments about Rishi Sudak and Keir Starman. Both of them seem like reasonably competent people to me. But then you look at the front benches, and obviously a lot is made of Suella Braveman. As a teacher myself, a lot is made of Gillian Keegan and various other people in the front benches. Then you compare that to the Labour front bench. There is still there are still some close to Corbyn like people in the front bench. We don't hear so much of them, but there are some interesting people in the front bench, potentially, that I'm not sure I would trust with power. I don't mind Keir Starmer so much, but I'd be interested in people's thoughts on, on that. Yeah. People keep very like, quiet about them. Yeah, that's good. I mean, Camilla, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, of course, we know, I mean, the room can share your frustration over the direction of the Conservative government, but the Labour government would not just be Keir Starmer. It would be, um, when you look at that, Rachel Reeves, you know, I mean, she's competent, but not exactly exciting. When you look at what Blair had, Blair had Robin Cook, um, Mm. Donald Dewar, George Robertson, Gordon Brown, Mm. you know, people who were even a year from the election, um, they were national figures. Mm. And the shadow cabinets, the most, probably the best known is probably David Lammy. Yes. And um, who... Who is? Um, I'm not quite sure how big his fan club is, but surely that would give people pause because the gentlemen here would vote for Conservatives because they are better than the alternative. One thinks the alternative, the collective alternative, might that be the Tory secret weapon? Possibly, although yeah, I would agree that successive cabinets, let alone shadow cabinets, have been, you know, not anyone's first eleven, and there's been a quality problem because. A lot of the cabinets have been supine and people have been chosen for positions because of their loyalty rather than their talents. I mean, I had Malcolm Rifkind on my GB News show a few weeks ago and I was just sort of like blown away by the man's intellect. And you imagine who he was serving in a cabinet with and then you add Thatcher to the mix and it kind of blows the current crop out of the water. Although one's loath to criticise today's politicians because the reason why the quality has gone down is because fewer people are wanting to get into the role. The other point I was also thinking about as Matt was just speaking is there is a, people have got ideological problems with this kind of un-Tory Toryism. But the reason why some people in this room, we talked earlier about Gen Z being anti-institution, people who are pro-institution are becoming anti-institution because the institutions aren't working for them. So how many stories have we done? I mean, I've sent off a passport for my daughter six weeks ago. I've heard nothing. Will I even get it by the time we go on holiday? Who knows? A friend of mine's trying to sort out probate. She's had to scale down work to become part-time because it's taking up so much of her time. We had a story today about how long power of attorney is taking. We then go on to trying to get a dental or doctor's appointment. I mean, these are obviously problems that, with the so-called blob that Labour will inherit. But, but the other problem with this is not even ideological. It's the idea that the country isn't working as it should. And whether that's a hangover from the pandemic, and we can say a lot about working from home, perhaps, or not, but this idea that we're all walking around and no one can do anything for us quickly is, of course, hugely frustrating. And it might be the symptom of something bigger. It's only natural the government is going to blame, be blamed for it. But that's the other sense of frustration, I think, in this room. I, I, do you agree with me? Well, let's hear, let's hear from you. Yeah. Sorry, what impact do you think all these strikes are having on the whole situation? 
And, and after COVID, where is the money supposed to be coming from? We've spent so much on COVID and Ukraine. Well, it's just another, it's sort of another ideological battle, isn't it, between those who don't think that above inflation pay rises are inflationary and those who have huge respect for public sector workers in frontline roles but don't necessarily want to feather the nests of middle managers pushing paper clips around, not sitting in offices that cost the taxpayers millions of quid because they're at home working, stroke, playing golf. So that's the trouble with it. Just, just to come in on that, though, just to go back to the focus group in Stoke, um, I describe focus groups as therapy sessions now because um, <laughs> you, you turn up, you know, you, you rent a room in a local kind of hotel and um, voters scream at you for 20 minutes about how crap the country is and then eventually you get to what you really want to talk about, which is, you know, what the issues are and, and what they'd like to see. Um, this cost of The cost of living crisis... Um, is so visceral. People are scared and they are anxious, they're nervous, they are terrified. They are absolutely convinced the future is going to be worse than the present and the present is already worse than the, than the past. And there is, a, there is a kind of declinism that's setting in out there, which is that nobody, again, has the answers to the long-term problems facing the country. And all they can see is that the things they thought were getting resolved through 2016, through changing the political economy, are just accelerating. And Fraser's written about this at length, that the political economy that people thought they were getting hasn't materialized. And I think it's, it's that sense that actually it's it's easier for our business and political leaders to revert to the status quo than actually take the tough decisions that are required to change it that people can see. And voters aren't idiots, right? They can see through a lot of what's happening. And what we're doing is we're reverting to the same old political economy. Let's get more of that mass migration. Let's keep low productivity, low growth. Let's keep big business happy. Let's not invest in non-graduates. Let's keep London at the center of everything. And let's just keep going with the thing that we know. Let's not change it. And if you do suggest that we should change it, well, you know, you're a problematic person and you should be pushed out of the political debate. Yeah, quick, just, quick, quickly, sorry, just quickly on the Labour question. Um, I think it's an interesting point, which is, is the, the memory of Jeremy Corbyn or I suppose the traces of Corbynism, something that's going to hurt Keir Starmer at the next election if people are struggling to find reasons. I mean, I think Keir Starmer and his team are clearly very worried about it, hence why they put so much energy in terms of the first stage of the Starmer project was trying to put distance between himself and Jeremy Corbyn. Early on, that was a suspension. Now they've gone the full whammy <laughs> and is, it is um, obviously blocking him from standing as a candidate. You have Diane Abbott, who is currently suspended. I personally, speaking to figures around Keir Starmer, think it would be quite surprising if she was allowed to stand as a candidate. Um, I think they're slightly looking for reasons to isolate the left of the party because they know that those Tory attack posters are going to be saying, you know, vote uh, Keir Starmer, get Corbyn, uh, you know, they can't really say that for Jeremy Corbyn or perhaps Diane Abbott now, but they can say it for John McDonnell. They could probably say for Richard Bergen. And um, you can go for the list like that. I think therefore in the shadow cabinet, they have 
actually not got so much of a broad church anymore. Um, and Keir Starmer has decided not to have an immediate post-local election for reshuffle. He doesn't have a great history of them because <laughs> uh, when he tried one, I think after yeah. the, you know, uh, after one set of local elections, um, when uh, they're done quite badly, when the Tories won Hartlepool, uh, you had a situation where Angela Rayner refused to move. The whole thing took days. It was quite awkward. Um, but I think there is a question about Angela Rayner because that is someone who has to be in a position. It's not Keir Starmer's choice. It is a democratically elected role from the membership. And while there are Corbynites who criticize Angela Rayner, I think it's very clear that Angela Rayner is much more, I would say, to the left of Keir Starmer than Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. He'd much rather have Rachel Reeves by his side. It looked like quite a crowded marriage on the day of the local elections launch. <laughs> it's Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, and Angela mm. Rayner, the three of them walking down the street. And therefore, there's some talk that he might try and demote her. Um, if you look at things that Angela Rayner has said, so for example, when Rishi Sunak publishes tax return, they have really strict messaging at the moment, that cautious approach we've been hearing about. Um, it was Angela Rayner who you know, suggested that the capital gains tax wasn't particularly fair, wasn't what normal working people had. And there was quite quickly, quickly a complete slapdown by Rachel Reeves, which is Labour is not going near capital gains tax. So I think to, to your point, um, the man the very fetching orange shirt, <laughs> um, I, I think there is a risk if you have some of these figures in those senior roles, at least of message discipline, not working out, you know, going off off in the way they don't want in a general election campaign. But I think that attack line of Corbyn is quite tricky. I think the attack line the Tories will try and do in relation to Corbyn is you can't trust Keir Starmer because you can easily get those video clips of Keir Starmer saying, Jeremy Corbyn is my friend. And then you can get a clip saying, he's not my friend. And I think we'll just see those going back and forth. And they'll try and do that. And I think that will be the way they try and use Corbyn as attack head. Okay, let's go to the back right now. There's um, somebody right in the corner there, I think. Um, <clears throat> Matt was saying that, the, that Labour own every single issue. And yeah. I was wondering, in those focus groups in local hotels in Stoke, uh, how culture war issues are perceived. Because one reason I'd vote Conservative is because they've got Kemi Badenoch. Sorry, because they've because got... Because they have Kemi Badenoch. Yeah, um... If you look at 2019 Conservatives, the top issue is cost of living, the second is immigration. And if you ask me to predict what's going to happen during the rest of the year, immigration is going to become an enormous issue in this country, bigger than I think it's been for a long time by the time we get to the next general election. Small boat numbers are going to continue to rise. We're going to see levels of net migration we've never seen in this country before. And there's going to be a big discussion about what that means, for housing, public services, and so on. The cultural questions beyond that, women's rights, rights of children, how we think of our history, identity, um, the common response to that question is to say, well, they're low salience issues. No one really cares about them. If you look at the, the list of issues on you know, the polling trackers, they're very low. But actually, just put Britain in global context. What's the story from America? The story from the US is actually, if you want to make those issues salient, you can do. You just need leaders that are willing to talk about it. If you look at actually what some conservatives are saying, if you look at what Miriam Cates or Danny Kruger is saying on schools, on what we're teaching children about sex and gender, how the barriers are being broken down, if you look at what some politicians are willing to discuss, um, then I think actually voters are really up for that conversation. And when they begin to tune in, as they did in Scotland, the most interesting takeaway from Scotland for me over the Gender Recognition Reform Act 
which sought to allow 16-year-olds to legally change their gender was this. When voters look at it, they say no thanks. 20% supported that. 80% opposed it. I polled it at the time, and a month afterwards, exactly the same. Most people look at this stuff and they say, this is insane. But they're, they're, they're scared to speak up because they're getting shouted down by the radicals. The biggest task facing this country, I think, is to empower moderate, the moderate middle to stand up and take on the radical minority. Most people do not want this, mm. right? That's a lesson from the polling. Mm. Okay, let's have more questions. Let's take... T- we've got... Um, we've got a few hands up, so let's take a group of them. Yeah, Zoe, why don't you... T- yeah. You part answered one of my questions, which was going to ask, invite the panel to speak on whether you think the cultural issues would surface, not so much as cultural war issues, but in the context of schools and parents being concerned about what their children were being taught. For example, about critical race theory, etc. But my other question was going to be, does anyone think that the upcoming National Conservatism Conference um, will come up with any of the new ideas that Matt, in particular, was uh, calling for. Okay, I think Matt's speaking at that conference, so he's in a good position to answer. But let's take some more questions. Can anyone see a route, Matt, for Rishi Sunak to be the Prime Minister after the next general election, or is it already too late? So, okay, anybody see a path for, for Rishi, Rishi Sunak to win? To okay, win, to be Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, a good one. Um, and let's, let, let's take another one. Let's do them in threes. R- right, at, right at the top here, man. Yeah. yeah. Scarf. Um, assuming you're the kingmaker for the, in the next election, what would your bargain should be? What would my... Your bargaining. What would you bargain? Oh, if I was like a sort of Lib Demi sort of person. <laughs> there is a leap kind of, yeah. or, or a nationalist, who knows? Anyway... Or a green? I don't know. Anyway, anyway. Um, okay, that's a, a very good question. Um, one that, Katie, why don't you take, because you, your political column tomorrow's magazine touches on this a bit. So is this what the kingmaker... King, kingmaker, king, yeah. yeah. It, 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 what, what would a kingmaker's price be? Okay, so we'll imagine a few different kings. Um, <laughs> I think Ed Davey um, would... Uh, well, I think, I think if the Lib Dems were to either be an electoral pact or a coalition because they could do confidence supply. Um, ultimately, the Liberal Democrats have ruled out going into... So Labour have ruled out going into coalition with the SNP, but they will not rule out going into coalition with the Lib Dems, which I think tells you something. And vice versa, the Liberal Democrats won't rule that out. So it, it's very possible, particularly if you look at the local election results, um, if that was repeated, then that could work. I think um, PR, so changing the voting system, would be a key Lib Dem demand. Um, representation. Um, now, Keir Starmer has said he doesn't like the idea of it, but lots in the Labour Party do. So I think if it was about keeping the Labour Party, you know, the Labour Party's opportunity to get back into power after that many years, um, that Keir Starmer would be under pressure from his own side to take it. I think there is an interesting question, though, which is if Labour is the largest party, 
they could decide to uh, ultimately not go into a coalition with another party and try and do uh, confidence and supply. And I had some figures in Labour say to me that Keir Starmer could probably do a very popular budget or, you know, and King's speech with lots of measures that you'd get support from smaller parties, knowing that you might have a general election fairly soon because <laughs> things might fall about. And that it's almost, you know, making a manifesto of reality in advance of that. So that's something else that could happen. I think the other thing the Liberal Democrats might ask for is Leveson 2 or something similar to that on press regulation. Um, Daisy Cooper, who is the deputy Liberal Democrat leader, is a former employee of Hacked Off, uh, that group. And uh, while Labour have got a little bit, oh, we might, we probably wouldn't do Leveson 2, it's something they've definitely been open to in the past. So I think that's another area where there are two Lib Dem demands that could be accepted by Labour, if you think about it. Then I think in terms of the SNP, we know what they'll ask for. <laughs> um, you don't need me to be here to tell you, but it will, um, but it'll be an independence referendum. And Keir Starmer's been pretty vigilant on the fact he would not do that and therefore completely ruled it out. So I think if you needed the SNP votes, I think it, I think the party would think it would be such a disastrous move for them to go back on what they were saying. That is probably a, a, an arrangement where you're just banking on the fact the SNP are not going to sink a minority Labour government and risk the Tories coming back in. I think they would try and see them off. And then I think if the Green Party came in and obviously were part of, you know, perhaps a, a wider coalition, um, uh, then I then obviously like, you think about some of their policies in terms of the environment and net zero. Um, and I think that's clearly what the push would be. Now, the Tories will hope that all the things I just said will be making everyone here think coalition of chaos. Um, but I think um, perhaps... The past year or so means that isn't quite as a punchy or effective as it once was. Okay. Um, can you see a path for for Rishi Sunak to win? Well, I think that Isaac Levido was telling the Conservative Party at the away day that the landing strip is extremely narrow, <laughs> and the plane is coming into land with one engine down and possibly a wing about to come off. Um, I think they could do three things. First of all, I think they could restate the case for conservatism loudly, and that would have to come with some policy measures, including reducing the tax burden. He's going on about these five deliverables by the end of this year. Obviously, that helps. It's interesting he's not said anything on housing, and Labour last week sort of stole their mantle on that. And actually, I'm finding that more conservatives are becoming yimby than nimby because they're worried that their children and their grandchildren can't afford accommodation anywhere near them. Um, so he could do some sort of reverse ferret, particularly as well with this uh, EU uh, repeal bill having completely fallen on its ass. He could try and do more on that, try and maximise the Brexit opportunities more, reduce the tax burden, help businesses out, be slightly more trustonomical without crashing the economy, um, maybe have a reshuffle and put some people in that do actually seem to be conservatives, bring in some grey hairs, prop it up with some experience. Second of all, I think CCHQ needs to get its act together, not only on attacking Labour and the Liberal Democrats, not necessarily coalition of chaos, but just coalition of doom, um, and make that work and also get their uh, proverbial together when it comes to campaigning, because I think CCHQ was at sixes and sevens throughout the entire local election campaign. The media weren't even invited to the launch in Wolverhampton. I mean, I heard anecdotally that they were barely campaigning in some key areas. What the hell are they playing at? And third of all, I think Rishi needs to personalise a bit more. He's very reluctant to do the whole father and husband thing. 
but I think the female vote as ever is really important and lots of people I think quite like David Cameron because he was statesmanlike but also he was a clearly a family man who loved his wife and they've shied away from all that and not done sort of you know let's shadow them for a week and write a piece for the magazine they're very scared of the criticism of his wife for the non-dom stuff but actually a lot of the people I'm speaking to are like who is this guy you know he sounds like somebody from the in-betweeners he's quite schoolboyish <laughs> in some of his kind of speech clearly he's fundamentally very decent everybody that I speak to say he is phenomenally hard-working that he's the kind of man that can literally see his way through a problem so that's great but this whole idea that it's acceptable for him to be working behind the scenes rather than people knowing who he really is in a family sense, I think, from a PR perspective, is important. And he's going to have to ramp that up. Well, Katie actually helps to the, gives a big clue as to who Rishi Sunak really is in tomorrow's magazine by revealing his favourite novel. Katie? One of his favourites. Um, Jilly Cooper is one of his favourite novelists. <laughs> Which, which book they read is it? it? Riders. Oh, my God. <laughs> God, we are so screwed. Do, do, does anyone now like Rishi Sunak? No pun Sunak? intended. Does anyone now like Rishi Sunak more? Okay, that's, that's about five votes. Um, I would just add to Camilla very briefly. I, I, can, I agree um, with all her points. I think you need the economy to massively improve. You need the boats. You need some progress. Even if it's not stopping the boats, which clearly I think seems quite impossible um if you had some flights to rwanda if you had some signs that these schemes were working if you had even one flight take off to rwanda it would mean labor could no longer say this scheme doesn't work because they're trying to say this scheme doesn't work rather than get into the morality mm. because they're worried about upsetting the voters they're trying to win back and i think things like that would just make it a bit trickier and then i think Keir Starmer needs to have some type of disaster or crisis really <laughs> just, okay. just, just wait, on wait, that. But before you do, can I just do on Rwanda? Can we do a quick show of hands for those who support the Rwanda policy and those against? Yeah. I'd say about even mix. Yeah. Interesting, Matt. Yeah, I think it's. I, I completely agree with Katie. But what's interesting is that so much of that is outside his control. And I think, you know, if you look at inflation, if you look at the small boats, if you look at legal migration, if you look at all of these issues that we, we've been talking about, they're not actually within the reach of number 10. So well, the why, not? why not? When it comes to immigration, the whole point of Brexit was they can control it. I mean, it's up to them how many visas they offer, surely. But we're going, as I, you know, at the end of this month's prediction, yeah. we'll, we'll see. 700,000. We'll see, maybe 700,000. That's kind of their choice, right? In terms of whether mm, That's not the it. choice. Well, that's not the choice of voters, I think voters... But it's the government's choice. I mean, the question is whether Sunni can control immigration. Can he control the small boats? Well, if he gets the Rwanda sort, uh, policy sorted, it might have the same effect as the Albanian deportations have had, which is quite profound. Mm. Um, if he set, decides to set fewer visas, especially for lower-skilled workers, then it's within his, his control to cut down immigration. Now, the choices he makes are something separate, but when it comes to what, what's within his power... I think both of those things are reasonably within this power. I've not met a single Conservative MP who thinks they're going to solve the small boats crisis this year. Yep. And I think as we go into the general election, let's fast forward 12 months. Let's say I'm right. Let's say you've got 50,000, 60,000 crossing on the small boats. Let's say net migration, 700,000. That's going to blow everything else out of the water. That's, that's it. 
Conservatives are toast. It doesn't matter if inflation comes down to 3 4%. It doesn't matter if they say coalition of chaos, blah, blah, blah. A lot of voters out there are going to say, well, hang on a second. You said control. There's none of that. There's none of that here. And so I think for Sunak, it's going to become, um, I think in a way, you know, I feel sorry for him because past dependency matters in politics. From where you start, it determines your eventual destination. And what's happened is he's come into office and a lot of things have been set in motion before he, he even got there. And he's now dealing with the consequences of that. And I think he's smart. I think the people around him are smart. I, I know his advisors very well. I think Isaac's great. I think obviously James Forsyth and others. I think they're very smart people. But they're dealing with things that began years ago. And voters are now, you know, looking at the Conservative Party as a party that has been presiding over all of these problems for, for 10 years plus. And there comes a time, one of the most interesting questions in polling is, is it time for a change? Right now, about close to 70% of voters say it's time for a change. They can't explain why. They can't tell you what the specific, what the specific issue is, but they say it's time for a change. Ronald Reagan once said, you should dance with the person who bought you. Right? And the conservatives haven't been dancing with the person that brought them. And that's the, that's the problem. I thought it was Shania Twain who said that. Ronald Reagan. Anyway, okay, let's have three more questions. Um, let's take one middle and the end, right? First of all, starting at the end, yep, Zoe, just pick somebody. That, that yeah, enthusiastic lady at the middle, yep. Hello, thank you. Um, calling this a coronation special. Yeah. And the king is oh, the so? king yeah. of... Okay. Scotland and Northern Ireland. So my two points are, how long can Northern Ireland carry on without a government? And what on earth is happening in Scotland? Oh, my word. What on earth is happening in Scotland? I could give you my top three theories. Anyway, sorry. Uh, let's take a middle question. Sorry, but before, um, yeah, sorry, anybody in the middle of the hall? Yep, sir, you'll do. Four rows back, we'll do the middle. And at the front, anyone else? Yep, sir, at the front, okay. Sir. I grew up understanding that we had a Rolls-Royce civil service in the UK. You talk about the home office and the boats and the passports. We don't seem to have the politicians can make policy, but there's nobody to execute it. Okay, good one. And right at the front here. Yeah, so. Thank you. Um, Two questions, if that's all right. Oh, go on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, do any of the panel members draw any inferences from the fact that Green and Lib Dems did do well? Does that say something about what is the confidence in the Labour Party, actually? And my next question, uh, with a focus to Matt, is you spoke about globalisation, and I've just started reading your book. Really interesting. And you speak about globalisation and the impact. Um, Which book is a matter of interest, um, sir? The voice, virtues, voice, and <gasps> values, voice, and virtue. Oh, right. yeah, just behind Jilly Cooper Sorry, and Rishi Sunak's list of. Um, my question to you is: Do you think um, so? The experts of the London School of Economics are saying globalization is actually going down, but that's the result of AI. And I'm just wondering: Do you think AI is the new disruptor for employment? Because um, we're not a manufacturing nation, we're a service-led economy. So I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Thank Whoa, you. we could do half an hour at any of those topics. Um, okay, I will. Um, 
On the whether one should, what, what, what we can learn about the rise of the Lib Dems and the Greens, Katie, that's yet another thing you mentioned in your column for tomorrow's magazine. Just read it, Anne. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, so, so I think it is an interesting one, which is, is it tactical voting? Or is it the case that Keir Starmer is leaving people pretty uninfused? I had someone in Liberal Democrats say to me, they think they've got the best of both worlds because Starmer is not scary, but he's also not very inspiring, <laughs> which means people are, I, I think if you look, you know, historically often when the Labour leader is someone who is palatable, not Jeremy Corbyn, um, it does mean people are more comfortable to vote for the smaller parties. Um, and you saw how in the Liberal Democrats really suffered in the 2019 general election. Um, I think that's for a few reasons. I think Jo Swinson saying she was going to be the next prime minister <laughs> wasn't the most effective slogan they've ever had. Um, revoke Article 50 also backfired a little bit. Um, but um, even, you know, he'd put those aside. The fact that it was Jeremy Corbyn meant that the Tories had a really strong message, which helped them keep lots of those blue wall, you know, areas, which now I think, you know, they're a little bit surprised because you look at those local election results, the fact that where Michael Gove is the MP in Surrey, that council is now Lib Dem control. Um, in, in the Cotswolds, um, it, it was such a surprise even to the Lib Dem councillor that he was already a councillor in another seat in Salford, I think. And he'd only put his name down to be the paper candidate, convinced he had no chance of winning and I had to give one up. So so, so I think um I think the Jeremy Corbyn and the concept the messaging that the Conservatives did slightly overly reassured Tories about the strength of their vote in some of these areas. Um, and then I think on the Greens, I think it's a really interesting question, which is if you look across, you know, Europe and other places, when are we going to have that green resurgence? It's something that Fraser's written about previously. And I think there is a part of the Tory party, which um, lots of people think the Greens are like to the left of Labour. But there is a portion of Tory voter that could switch from Tory to Green. Um, if you think about kind of those who kind of voted for a green Brexit. Um, you know, you could face in that sense. So, so I think there's lots of things going on. It's really hard with local elections because, for example, you know, Labour is saying, "Look at Plymouth. We're, we're heading to power." And it's like, well, Plymouth Council was lost for the Tories because they cut down a lot of trees, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, and that could, that could have, you know, been any. It was a pretty diabolical plan. So I think any party could have done that and lost control. So you're sometimes at risk of overreading. I think it certainly does show you though that, you know, I think it's safe to say from the Keir Starmer approval ratings, we're not living in Keir mania. I'm not sure if we're going to get there, but he's not scary, which I do think is just quite good for the smaller parties um, because people, you know, they're not scared about having that propped up by others as much. Um, and Camilla, what about the civil service? We've seen Dominic Grab effectively defenestrate it um, recently, um, it, uh, which is quite an assertive move now. Um, do you think Britain is becoming ungovernable? I think the Home Office is far too unwieldy from the gentleman who asked that specific question. Successive Home Secretaries have complained that the department is just far too big and sections of it need to be hived off, you know, separate perhaps department for immigration might be music to Conservatives' ears, the idea of what it encompasses. Also, I do think it's problematic that, you know, we had the complaints about both Pretty Patel and Suella Braverman bullying. Um, I think Rab's response to what happened in the Tolly report does raise serious questions about whether there is enough close scrutiny of the way things are being run. And I think 
the result, the outcome there. And let's bear in mind what Rob, I mean, clearly Rob is a nightmare to work for. Um, I don't think we can deny that. But considering what the leaking was and what he was accused of, you know, at one point throwing tomatoes, some kind of drive-by fruiting, and then um, to what he actually ended up being found guilty of, which was he may have spoken in a manner that may or may not have made people feel a little bit intimidated, and unfortunately it wasn't, you know, in the th it, it, it did reach that threshold, which was low. I think it is quite worrying for all of us that a minister can't be robust with his department if his department is failing without somebody being, as Julie Birchall has coined the phrase in The Spectator, a cry-bully. I mean, I'm not advocating bullying in the workplace. Jesus, I've worked in a newsroom for 20 years. I, I know what more than robust behavior is. But equally, come on, these people are trying to run the country. And, um, you know, I think that bad decision-making should be called out. And if work isn't up to scratch, you know, if the passport office isn't delivering passports in time to members of the public who are paying unprecedentedly high taxes, then that's not a fair state of affairs. You know, if we're paying this much tax, the standard of service should surely go up, not down. What, what are we paying it for? And Matt, uh, if you were to get chatbot GPT to respond to the AI question in two minutes, what would it say? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure how to mark a university essay anymore because I don't know what's real and what isn't. Um, so we've got huge problems coming down the track. Um, I think we're on the cusp of a, a, a new industrial revolution. I think that's pretty clear to everybody. I think this is going to have enormous effects on truth, how we interpret truth, what we mean by truth. Um, I also just wanted to come back to the um, chap at the back who also raised a question about what this means for not necessarily about AI, but but where we're going with education and also where we're going with an increasingly political education because it's a very it's a very good point. Um, just just outside of this issue of technology, I think we've got schools that are increasingly becoming activist in how they're teaching children um, and which have become a bit of a wild west uh, in terms of the people they're bringing in and um, the things that they're, they're telling children. And I'm very supportive of the proposal that we should have a full government review of who is being brought in and what are they teaching. And every parent in the country should have the right to be able to access materials that are used in the classroom uh, when teaching their kids. And I think that's a no-brainer. Um, I don't want to see Britain become America. I don't want to see the politicization and sexualization of children become a very divisive issue. So I want to see us get ahead of it. To get ahead of it, we need to do some of the things that um, some MPs are saying. We need a full review. We need to really understand what's happening, who's being brought in and what are they teaching, and then get ahead of it before we end up in these very divisive culture wars. Because we are seeing, I think, um, a very openly political ideology uh, infect the classroom. I work in universities. Like, I see this. Like, I live it. It's not a mythical culture war. It's happening. So we need to just take a step back, understand it, deal with it. 
Okay, um, let's take the last couple of questions and we'll try to make it brief in everybody's room. We didn't deal with the Scottish and Northern Ireland Oh, question. my word. Fraser, you should do the Scotland one. What is happening in Scotland? What is really going on? Why would the police be erecting a crime CSI tent outside the house if it was just a question of moving money from one account to another? Um, uh, basically, it's very difficult to tell. what the, the, the exact nature of this investigation has got Scotland agog. Everybody's asking the same question. They must be looking for something a bit more than this. Why are there, what were they looking for in their barbecue, for example? Um, <laughs> like, what was that bus doing outside her mother in law's house? Um, I mean, it just gets curiouser and curiouser. Uh, and I'm, um, it's probably, you know, it's probably illegal for me to give some of my speculation, but. Um, given that much of it was under investigation. I do think that they blew their chance. I think, I, I think that, um, you know, that my, um, that during the leadership election, they went for the wrong candidate. Um, had it been Kate, she would have been taking a Highland broom of justice to this Augean stables of um, lowland um, corruption. And, um, they, and, and instead they went to the continuity candidates. I think the SNP itself, the fact that Hamza Yusuf is quite regularly asked, are you running a, an illegal operation? Is the SNP legally uh, dodgy or criminal outfit or not? And he can't give a straight answer to that question. <laughs> so I can see a circumstance, actually, where the SNP itself might have to be kind of legally dissolved and the successor movement put in its place. This, this investigation will last have quite a long time, they always do, perhaps way into the next general election, um, I, but I think the upshot for all of the schadenfreude from the unionists um, will be probably 20 more seats to the Labour Party and Keir Starmer more likely to be Prime Minister. So that is, there are going to be a clear net, net beneficiary. The Scottish Tories might get a few more seats, but nowhere near as many as, uh, uh, as, as Labour do. And, sorry? Independence, I think, is off the agenda. Um, I think that... Um, if you look at the support for it, it's, it's pretty low. I think Brexit made it a very difficult logistical operation because look at the look at what we've seen in Northern Ireland. Multiply that by ten for the Scotland England border. There's a reason that the SNP never now approach that question because as soon as you start it, you see disruption on a scale that cannot possibly justify it. So I think we can. I think by the way that Kate Forbes and Hamza Youssef also pretty much accepted during the leadership campaign that it was not around the corner. Now, many SNP members are there because they kept being told the battle was around the corner. Now that they've admitted that it's not, you're going to see significant falling away of supporters who they've cleverly kept warm since 2014, but you've got to basically give up that um, pretense after a while. Um, so the union, I think, is incredibly safe. Also, we mentioned Northern Ireland as well. Um, I, had actually, I thought the parliament would be back up and running already, but that hasn't um, been it. But I, um, I, I'm not quite sure if this Windsor agreement um, is, is how much of attention is going to alleviate. Do you have any thoughts on that, Camilla? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I think just on, on Northern Ireland, I think that clearly in government they hope the Windsor framework would, I think, not be voted for by the DUP, but at least wouldn't be voted against. And that was a miscalculation because the DUP did vote against it. Um, and I think they they hoped some of the you know the leader um, Jeff Johnson, uh, Gavin Robinson, some of the more what they would think of the moderates within the DUP 
would get behind the deal. And while they, I think they have welcomed it as progress and what was there before, it clearly isn't enough. I think when that failed to come to pass, the hope was actually sometime after the local elections, the DUP might go back into power sharing. Now, I think this could once again be a false hope, but they thought it was too politically tricky, perhaps, for the DUP to do that before the local elections. The DUP are facing, obviously, lots of domestic pressure. Lots of very frustrated voters in Northern Ireland don't have a functioning government. So I think uh, there is a chance, um, you know, that this does come to pass, but it is obviously looking pretty um, negative for now. I think the framework's a start, but everybody seems to be talking about it being a work in progress. Mm. There could be an argument. I know Rishi's made that argument about, oh, you've now got the best of both worlds. But I don't know whether that's landed with the people of Northern Ireland, especially with Stormont still. Just, just briefly on, on, on Scotland too, the most interesting polling on Scotland is ask voters what do they want to do, fix the NHS, fix schools, fix the economy, then ask them what do you think the SNP want to do? And they say independence, gender reform. So there is a complete mismatch, a growing mismatch. And I think Fraser's right. If you look at the polling on independence over the last three months, I mean, this hasn't really got enough attention, but support for independence has been dropping significantly, way outside the margin of error. I mean, I think the latest poll has a 10-point lead for no, um, you know, which is, we haven't really seen that for a long time. So I, I think it's off the agenda for the foreseeable. Okay, um, let's take the last question. Okay, so the Piers Brosnan look like him. Yeah. Yeah, you, sir. is not working. I'm not convinced Labour would work either. My reason for voting Tory is it's the only party which has ever produced a, a prime minister as a, who's not a white Anglo-Saxon male. Right. Good observation. And one we can see in the um, coronation as well. Uh, but let's, okay, let, let's take another couple quickly. It's so much fun having you guys in company today. So. Right. Um, so in the blue shirts. The panel seemed to be of the view that the Conservative Party would lose the next election based on immigration policy. But if they do, what on earth will a Labour government do about immigration? Good point. And let's take the final one, sir, in the um, cufflinks. Thank you. As Conservatives with big C and small Cs rebuild ourselves following the next election, what can we learn from Conservative movements in other jurisdictions? I think about Poland... Italy, the US, what can we learn from other countries? Okay, right, we'll, we'll try and keep this short because I promise I'll let, you know, let you get away for your dinner, but, um, but Matt, you, you're, you're actually going to this National Conservatism Conference this weekend. There's a whole bunch of the people he said from other countries are going to be there. What are the lessons that the, the, the Conservatives in this country can learn from what's going right for Conservatism abroad? So that is the million-dollar question, and it's, it's a great question. If you compare British conservatives to their French, Italian, Swedish, American counterparts, they're, they're just so far behind intellectually. They're just not where they need to be. The most interesting ideas now are coming from outside of Britain. What's the relationship between the conservatives and the state? Is it now time that actually conservatives need to rethink how they can use the state to protect and promote national interest. How are Conservatives going to intervene in issues around culture? British Tories say, oh, this is low status. 
right? We're not interested. This is a bit mucky. Conservatives elsewhere, they're making hay. They're talking about women's rights, rights of children, history, identity, uh, the political economy, big tech. Listen to Georgia Maloney and what she says on big tech. I mean, whatever your views, whatever you think of Maloney, it's the most interesting intellectual argument about how our rights as citizens and families are being undermined by big tech. And I just feel like intellectually conservatives aren't really, British conservatives are not in the conversation right now. So the conference is bringing together lots of interesting people from different countries, from very different traditions. You know, you've got Suella Braverman, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, you've got David Frost, you've got Miriam Cates, you've got interesting thinkers, interesting intellectuals, have very different ideas about where the Conservative Party should go. But in my mind, it is basically a trailer for where we're going, which is this big discussion about how the Conservative Party can actually be what its name implies. But interestingly, part of that conference does seem to also be a Bring Back Boris campaign. I just, I don't understand the Boris thing. I, I've never, if you're, if you're a conservative voter and you look at actually what Johnson did in power, he didn't, he did, I don't think personally... Who, who, who would you place in the Bring Back Boris Camilla? David Campbell-Bannerman, who's heavily involved in the organisation. That, no, that's a CDO conference. So, that, so, oh, so the, the CDO yeah. conference is a different conference from NatCon. So NatCon emerged in the US and Europe, is led by an international group who basically want to reinvent conservatism. The CDO campaign is basically, let's get Boris back okay. in charge. Right? And they're two very different conferences. But there are plenty. I mean, and if you think Boris Johnson is the future of conservatism, I have a bridge to sell you. But to quote somebody like Jake Berry in Portcullis House a couple of weeks ago, you know, there's a lifeboat for the Conservative Party and it's got Boris's name on it and he's the captain of the ship and the sh I'm saying the ship is going down. <laughs> the captain has gone down with the ship. But there is this. there are still some, let's be honest, whatever conference they're attending, that think that bring back Boris yeah. is the solution. So I talked about Prince Andrew territory earlier on, right? Prince, Prince Andrew territory is minus 60. Boris is minus 40. Okay. Who, um, who in this room would like Boris Johnson to come back as prime minister? Okay. Who would like Kemi Badenoch? Who would like Penny Morden? Okay. Boris Johnson didn't get a single hand up, I think. I think Kemi did recently, but anybody will leave me out. Rishi Sunak, do you want to stay as Prime Minister? Mm. Just, okay, so I basically got a few months. Rishi wins over Kemi, is that right? I think he does. I think we need to redo. This is good news for the Prime Minister here. He gets the, as close as a vote of confidence as you can get relative to, well. One it, side of the room want Rishi Sunak to stay. Yeah. He's doing better than Sharon White today. It's, yeah. Sorry, a lot of people. Okay, well, I think that is probably our, our time is upon us now. We're going to have to somehow edit this for the podcast. But um, thank you to Canicor Genuity for again sponsoring this evening and sponsoring so many of our podcasts. Thank you so much for turning up, for giving us your questions and your food for thought. And please join me in thanking our panel this evening. Thank you.